Well, before we open up God's word, let's pray and ask for his blessing on what we do here. Merciful Father who reigns on the throne of heaven, we praise you this afternoon for the love that you have for your Son, for it is by your love that we know how to love one another. The love that you have for your Son, Jesus Christ, makes us adore you. It makes us stand in awe of you and what you have done to save us. We praise you also that you have chosen to love us in your Son. For we know that out of your love for the world, you sent him to save and redeem those who had once fallen away, those who had once raised their fists in rebellion. Lord, you have chosen to save them from their sins. We thank you also, O Lord, then, for the love that this congregation has for all the saints, that you, our loving Father, have given us the spirit of wisdom to live at peace with our brothers and sisters and to work together to lift up praises to your holy name. We thank you also that you have given us the spirit to study your word and to truly understand its meaning for our lives. And so we ask this afternoon that you will grant that the Spirit works powerfully in us, that we come to comprehend the depths of the riches of the salvation that you have worked from the beginning of the world to its end. Grant also that we come to understand fully what is our inheritance, what is the, the promises that you have made of the life everlasting and a time at which faith will turn into sight as we behold the face of our Lord and as we enjoy eternal life, together with all those who have believed in you, with all those who have called upon your name and who have sought their salvation in Jesus Christ. Grant also that we would understand the immensity of your power by which you created the world out of nothing, but also that which you raised Jesus Christ from the dead and by which you also bring us who are spiritually dead people back to life again. O Lord, grant your blessing on this worship service that it may glorify you. Strengthen our hands, sharpen our minds, and soften our hearts. For so often these things resist the gospel. So often these things resist your word and the claim that you have on our lives. Lord, we ask that you will do this in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Well, this afternoon, we'll be hearing a sermon on True repentance. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? So I'd like to open with you to God's word from Psalm 32, where David writes a psalm that it, whose purpose is for teaching believers how to repent. In this psalm, David recounts how he himself resisted repentance and it took its toll on him until he learned his lesson and then he confessed his sins to the Lord. So Psalm 32, a masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So far, the word of the Lord. Let's now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 33, which can be found on page 903 of the Trinity Psalter. Sorry, page 888. There we read the confession of the church. What is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is the dying away of the old self? To be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to life of the new self? wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. So far. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come to that part of that catechism in this Lord's Day that begins to put some focus on how we respond to everything that comes prior to it. The question is, how do we now live? Knowing what we know about the depth of our sin, knowing what we know about our salvation in Jesus Christ, our faith, and the necessity of good works. What follows in the Catechism from Lord's Day 33 and on is about our sanctification, our being made holy. And since this is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ's Spirit, the following Lord's Days are about Christ's work in our lives, how he is working to make us more and more in his image. Now, sanctification stands in contrast to justification, which is another thing that Christ earned for us. But justification is a one-time declaration that God makes in which he declares us innocent from our guilt, righteous according to his law. Now, justification is instantaneous. It happens as soon as God makes that declaration, which he does when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. But sanctification is different than that. It's a process. It's ongoing. It's drawn out over the entire span of our lives. 
In fact, it's never fully completed in this life. Now, Lord's Day 33, it captures this idea when it says that true conversion or repentance is the dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. It doesn't say it's the death of the old life, and it doesn't say it's the life of the new, but it's the dying and the coming to life. Sanctification, then, is ongoing with us being made more and more holy over time, more and more in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in order to do the work of sanctification, then, the Spirit uses the gospel, including the law, to induce godly grief and godly gratitude. So I bring you the word of God under the following theme, that by the power of the Spirit, we turn from death to life. And we'll see two parts. The Spirit puts the old nature to death. And the second part, the Spirit brings the new nature to life. So the process of sanctification has two parts, or you could say it has two facets, two ways of describing the very same process. These two facets of sanctification are the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new, as question and answer 88 indicates. There is a distinction between the the dying and the coming to life, but we can never separate them out entirely. They are both part of the one work of sanctification. It's like when you go to the grocery store and you're hoping to, to follow a more healthy diet. And on the one hand, you've got the aisle with the junk food, and on the other hand, you've got the aisle with the health foods. You could say as you pursue this diet that you are turning away from the junk food, but you could also say that you're turning towards the healthy food. It's just two ways of describing the very same thing. And that's how it is with sanctification. When our old nature is dying, the new nature is also coming to life. When we turn away from sin, it is at the same time turning towards our God. Now, the Catechism chooses to begin its explanation with the dying of the old nature, which is a process that can be very difficult for us to begin. We're naturally resistant in our hearts to that idea of putting to death the old nature. We don't want to start that work because we don't want to admit our sin and our failures. And even a very righteous man like King David went through this very thing, which we can read about from Psalm 32, the verses 3 and 4. There David says, For when I kept silent about my sins, my my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God was disciplining David for his sin. So too does God discipline us in order to bring us to repentance. Now we know that we can't generally identify particular punishments with particular sins, that one sin always results in a particular punishment, but it's still wise for us to be sensitive to when God may be disciplining us for our resistance to repentance. And when we get the sense that God is is disciplining us, then it is time for us to bow our heads, humble our hearts, and repent before God. If we refuse to do so, 
If we withdraw from God like David did and try to hide our sins from God, then things can get very bad. He says his bones wasted away. He groaned all day long. He felt oppressed by God's own hand, and all his strength was spent. Well, if that's the result from refusing to repent of our sins and confess them before God, we might ask why someone such as David would ever keep silent about their sin. Isn't the cost too high? Doesn't it cost too much to resist repentance? If we know that God is merciful and grants forgiveness when we ask, and we know that we have forgiveness because of Christ's work, which never changes and is certainly sufficient, then why does anybody ever keep silent about sin? Well, think about it. Question and answer 89 states that the dying of the old nature is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. Now, if grief over offending God is the dying of the old nature, then when we open up about our sin to God, that old nature is being put to death. And that old nature of ours, of course, does not want to be put to death. It wants to stay alive. So it does what it can to prevent this death by trying to hide, by trying to keep silent about our sins. This is a very common problem for Christians, particularly in the area of daily devotions. It's one of the reasons why keeping up a habit of daily devotions is as hard as it is. It's because our old nature does not want to die. It's in survival mode. And so it resists those daily things which are so healthy for a Christian, like daily Bible reading, daily prayer, especially confessing our sins before God and and our dependence upon Him. But that's also why it is so important to be committed, to be dedicated to something as, as simple as daily devotions. Now, the dying of the old nature, it has a particular character to it. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are not the same. They may look the same for a short time and on the surface, but they are not the same. They are entirely different things. Worldly sorrow is focused on myself. It's focused on one's own self. Worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry because I got caught, and I'm sorry because I'm being punished. Worldly sorrow doesn't hate sin, and it certainly doesn't hate the fact that we've grieved God by our sins. What it hates is discipline. What it hates is discipline. And those who grieve with worldly sorrow will regret the fact they're prevented from sinning for a short time while while the discipline carries on, while the punishment is going, but they will return to their sin as soon as the punishment is over. This sorrow will lead to death, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is because worldly grief is the grief of the old nature, a nature that is spiritually dead and cannot live. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is focused on God. This kind of sorrow tries to see things from God's point of view. When we grieve with godly sorrow, we take into account God's holiness, his wrath against sin, 
and how offensive our sin is to him. Then we recognize the wrongness of our sins, and by the power of the Spirit, we make a beginning in the process of hating sin as God hates it. This is godly sorrow. And we can see an example of what godly sorrow looks like in Psalm 32. This is a psalm for teaching, and David uses the example of his own life as he teaches the godly how they are to repent. He says there in Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Well, this is a confession that doesn't hold anything back. There's no corner of David's heart that he's, that he's saying, God, please don't go there. Please don't look there for my sin. No, David opens up his heart entirely to God. Every corner, every dark nook and cranny he opens up before God as painful for him as that might be that's because our sins must be laid out and in full and that's also why elsewhere such as in Psalm 19 verse 12 David asks God to declare him innocent even from hidden faults faults of which David himself is not aware as he repents before God he prays who can discern his errors declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is how godly sorrow repents. He's repenting even for those sins which he might not be being punished for just yet. And when you consider it for a moment then about this hiding our sin from God, we realize that if we try to hide it from God as we come to him in prayer, that that's, that's no help at all. It's almost ridiculous to think that we can try to hide our sin from the God who sees everything, who knows everything. It's just as silly as Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden after they sinned. Yes, it's true, God's holiness, it makes us sinners want to run from his presence, want to hide from him, but it's no advantage to us. God knows us already before we come to him in prayer. He knows our sin. He knows our weaknesses. And so we can keep no secrets from God. But because of this very fact that God knows us completely, this makes prayer, especially prayers for repentance, one of the most liberating things Christians can do. We can keep no secrets from God since he knows everything already. Admitting our sins will not change what God knows about us. The question is, are we going to be honest about it? It basically comes down to trust. Do we trust God? Do we trust him enough that when we confess our sins, he will forgive us? Do we believe in our hearts that he is faithful to his promises, that he will forgive us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ? Or do we think perhaps that God's like us? When we get offended, then, then we tend to get a bit vindictive before we forgive the people who have offended us. Do we think God is like that, vindictive and petty? Do you think that he'll only, make us, only forgive us after he makes us feel sufficiently bad about our sins? The scriptures do not reveal God to be that kind of God. 
He is not like us in that regard. And we can see from texts like Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, says David, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You can see there's no delay between repentance and forgiveness. Those who trust in the Lord, even with the confession of our sins, even the deepest, darkest corners of our hearts, the sins that lie there, they're surrounded by his steadfast love and the promise of God to wash them clean and to forgive them of their iniquity. All of this we can do only by the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us all that we need to hate and to flee from our sins. He causes us to grieve over our sins and overcome the sin in our lives. There is, frankly speaking, no sin that is too great for the Holy Spirit to overcome and no sinner too lost for Christ to save. In due time, according to his own plan and purpose, God will give the victory either in this life or in the life to come. Well, this trust in God and experience of victory over sin comes along with a love for God and a joy that we have in Him. And we'll explore this in our second point, that the Spirit brings the new nature to life. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, turning away from sin is one way to describe true repentance, true conversion. Turning towards God is the other way to describe the very same thing. Thus, as the old nature dies and we feel grief over offending God, so too we begin to feel a joy that is just as heartfelt as our grief. Grief and repentance are characteristics of the Christian life, but we don't always have to grieve. Just as David wrote in Psalm 32, verse 11, that the righteous may be glad in the Lord, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Joy also characterizes the life of the Christian. Now, the Catechism teaches that the coming to life of the new nature is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. And it's critical that we understand this joy in God is through Christ. Without him, we can have no joy in God since we were alienated from him. We were rebels. And if Christ had not come and done his work on the cross we would be condemned and we would die and we would be judged according to our sins. But in Christ, we find our salvation from this condemnation. In Christ, we receive adoption as sons of God. In Christ, we are no longer enemies of God, but we become his servants. In Christ, we have peace with God. And in Christ, we live in the hope of life everlasting. It is all in Christ. So faith in Christ is required for us to find joy in God. Where the dying of the old nature includes a growing hatred of sin and flight from wickedness, this is complemented by a love and a delight to obey God. As our new nature comes more and more to life, we find increasingly that we love God and that we love our neighbor And that we love to do what God's law requires. 
more and more we begin to walk in his ways and more and more we begin to fulfill God's purpose for our lives, which is to praise and glorify him. Psalm 32 verse 9 records David's instruction to those who want to learn about this repentance, about this joy that we can find in God. He says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. You see, our obedience to God is not like a stubborn animal, which begrudgingly does what its owner commands. We are not being compelled or steered against our own wills, not at all. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, they are all engaged towards doing what what God desires for us, what God has commanded us. What God requires of us in his law, it ends up being the very thing that we want and love to do. Instead of hating God and our neighbor as our old sinful nature would have, instead we love them with all of our hearts, soul, and mind, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. So everything we've said so far concerning the coming to life of the new nature is a kind of a bird's eye view of salvation. Of the, that's the end goal of sanctification, so to speak. But perhaps today, right now, as you hear these things, you don't feel particularly delighted to do God's will. Perhaps you don't really feel all that loving towards God or your neighbor either. And maybe you're experiencing a particularly profound, sharp, and painful inner struggle day by day to obey his law. Now, if this describes you, then don't take this to mean that there is no faith in your life. Everybody in this life is a work in progress. That includes the most pious people among us, those who obey God's law to the very best of their ability, but it also includes those who have the very least beginnings of the godly life. Even for the most obedient, we should recognize that this is only a small beginning of the holiness to which we have been called and the holiness which God has promised to us. So do not lose hope. If the coming to life of the new nature still seems like a distant reality, instead take courage in the fight against your sin that God is helping us to fight it at all. We should rather, instead of being discouraged, instead of despairing, we should rather pray that the Spirit grant us a joy in God's service and help us to look forward to the hope of life everlasting. There in the next life, we will no longer have to fight anymore against our sinful nature. Remember always that in Christ, the battle against sin and evil is already won in principle. The writing is on the wall for our old and sinful nature. It is only a matter of time before we are freed from it, so there is no need for us to despair of gaining the victory over sin. Now we come to the part in the Catechism that speaks about good works. When we live according to the will of God, we are engaging in what are called good works. It is here in question and answer 91 that the catechism concludes its introduction on good works. Previously, it had spoken about the necessity of good works, for example, in Lord's Day 32 and Lord's Day 24. There, the catechism establishes the necessity of the presence 
of good works in the Christian life. And Lord's Day 33 tells us what they are. It says there that they are only those which are done out of true faith, which conform to God's law and are done for his glory and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. Well then, what are good works? Now, good works are not simply those things that the world would consider good. For example, charity is considered good, and it receives its due praise in the newspapers, on the radio, and on television. People see charity, and they speak well of those who give charity. But charity, even though many consider it good, on its own, is not a good work that pleases God as such. It is not a good work as far as God is concerned, and it is not what the Catechism has in mind here. Good works are of an entirely different character, an entirely different source. They begin with true faith. They are only those which are done out of true faith. That's a little bit tricky to describe, though. What does it mean to do good works out of true faith? How does that faith impact our daily life, you could ask? Well, doing good works, it means to do our work, whatever it might be, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To use the example of charity once more, charity is no good work on its own, according to Scripture, but caring for the poor and the sick and the fatherless and the widow, for Christ's sake, is good work. Doing good things for Christ's sake makes all the difference. And in this manner, we can give true thanks to God, as the Holy Spirit says through Paul in Colossians 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. We can describe it further if we see that Christ himself has a unique point of view regarding good works. In Matthew 25, we have recorded for us the parable of him separating the sheep from the goats. In Matthew 25, verse 36 to 40, he speaks to the sheep about what they did for him. Christ says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did... We see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you. And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the sheep, the righteous, those who have been separated from the goats, they seem a little bit confused when Christ says that they, they fed him that they gave him something to drink, that they showed hospitality to him, clothed him, and visited him in illness and in prison. But Christ teaches us this principle, that doing good works out of true faith means to do these things as though we were doing them for Christ himself. And that is what it means to do good works out of true faith, according to God's law and to his glory. For this reason, it does not fall to us or any other person to decide or determine what is a good work. The common opinion of man is fickle like a ship without a rudder. Ships need a rudder in order to to steer, in order to end up where they intend to go, but without a rudder, who knows where it will end up? 
And since the precepts of people are not guided by the word of God, then as their, cha- their tastes change, so too does their morality. What people say is good today will be evil tomorrow. And besides all that, people do not even have the authority to say what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. God's word alone is the authority. It alone is the standard for telling us what is good, what is a good work. As a consequence, then, we can never say that great obedience in one part of God's law covers for disobedience in another part of God's law. We can never claim that our private life doesn't matter because our public life is pious. We can't pretend, for example, that just because we show up to church every Sunday that we can get drunk every Friday and Saturday and party it up. Even though there are those who might claim that our private life is our own business, that is simply not the case. Good works are those done in accordance with God's law and to his glory in every aspect of our lives. God does not consider what people think about it when he teaches us about good works in the scriptures. And neither should we, because we are not people pleasers. We are God pleasers. Now, although our works in this life are still tainted by sin, nevertheless, when we do good works out of true faith, And to the glory of God, they are truly good and truly God-pleasing. As such, in this life, we do already begin to have true obedience in God, and we catch a glimpse, small though it might be, of what the life to come will be like. Whenever we turn to God in repentance, we are actively engaging in the process of sanctification, something which we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when, by his power, we do repent, we can be certain of God's forgiveness and thus find joy in God through Christ, offering thanks to him with our good works. Amen.